0: Okay, let's turn tonight to Isaiah chapter 53. Please welcome our crew from the Potter's Shed and from Lake Tahoe tonight, a a double team. Let's give them a warm welcome tonight. Great to see you guys. Don't worry, Bill, you won't get proud if you accept the applause. I saw you, you put your head down. There's Mike. Mike, he's, he, he said, can I come in later so everybody can see me and then I can. I can. <laughs> Not only Isaiah 53, but Romans chapter 5. while we have a few moments of silent prayer, Mike was just saying that a friend of his spoke, was it a friend of yours? that spoke to Ilaria Ramelli recently, and she asked uh, for prayer. One of the best interviews I've ever seen, Jim found on Google of Ilaria Ramelli on the apocatastasis, a, a lot more on it. She's writing again on it. And she had to be, in a recliner for the interview because she has severe scoliosis and some, a challenge with almost with blindness, too, I think. But she asked for prayer, so I think we should do that tonight. She's surely given me a lot of momentum. The interview that I saw that Jim found for me was by a pastor from the Reformed background and he was basically telling her that she's a hero of a lot of pastors. I won't go that. I don't call anybody my hero except the Lord Himself. He's my hero, but I get what he's saying. And the people from the Southern Baptist backgrounds, um, Roman Catholic, Pentecostal backgrounds, um, many different backgrounds like us are discovering. And the pastors are discovering the apocatastasis, the universal restoration, and they're they're asking two questions. Are we alone and are we heretics? And we're pretty sure we're not heretics, but sometimes some of the pastors feel alone. I have not felt alone. I've got a congregation of co-laborers with me that I consider to be my contemporaries and my equals and peers. And I'm very grateful, so we didn't have so much of a trauma in coming to the realization that God is love, which is basically the realization God is, in fact love. And however, Alaria Ramelli has done a spectacular amount of research, and probably enough for three or four lifetimes of researchers. And she's in still producing. The latest book she wrote is called A Larger Hope and it takes us all the way up to Juliana of Nor- Norwich, who was one of the Christian mystics, the good kind of mystics. And, but she asked for prayer, so let's keep her in mind and in prayer. Also for the disaster in our own nation and remember once again that Samaritan's Purse, Franklin Graham's organization is very excellent and on the, right on the scene all the time when, they come to, when it comes to these natural disasters like the hurricane that has just recently struck the Carolinas. Keep that in mind. You might want to look that up and contribute to that and pray for that. But let's take a few moments of silent preparation, please. Father, we thank you for your remarkable faithfulness that is demonstrated in the gospel of the glory of your Son. And we pray for one of your special servants, Ilaria Ramelli, as she undergoes this difficult challenge. And we pray that you'll grant her grace, the kind of grace that she's discovered that you show in your universally saving grace, grant her personally. We ask that you'll do the same for many in our congregation who are undergoing various kinds of trials, physical and otherwise. And we pray for the victims of the latest hurricane, Father, that something good will come out of this catastrophe, that hearts will turn to the Lord, that the veil will be taken away from hearts. We pray this for our nation at large and for our generation because the veil was torn at Calvary because the flesh of Messiah was torn. But a veil remains over the hearts of people. And so we pray that you'll grant repentance to us, grant repentance to the church, For we have seen your son in the wrong light in many cases. So we pray tonight that we will see the gospel backlit as it is by Isaiah 53. We thank you, Father, today that though we do not follow the calendar of Judaism, that we are very well aware that this is the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, And we understand the significance of it. We understand, beginning with September 9th, the ten days of awe, and you've allowed us in some special way this year to approach the atonement in ten days of awe, which are climaxing in this day. We pray that you'll allow us to focus our total attention on Jesus Christ and Him crucified, For there, everything makes sense. There, the center of our redemption and our reconciliation makes sense. There, and from there, we see a universal horizon of salvation that makes total sense when we're focused on Jesus Christ. When we're focused elsewhere, it doesn't make sense. So grant that our focus remain on our Savior Jesus Christ we ask this in his name amen I have many directions I'm going in in Romans right now and we have finished the left and the right flank of Romans as you look head-on to Romans you see a left flank Romans 1 through 4 we see a right flank Romans 12 through 16 and we have used a pincer movement from both flanks toward the center there's a double center First is Romans 5 through 8, the second Romans 9 through 11, and I'm using as a interpretive tool Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. Ephesians 2, 4 begins with, but God in his great mercy or his abundant mercy, which should be understood as universal mercy, God in his universal mercy, because of his great love, for us, and that great love should be understood as his unrestricted, unconditional, and uncontingent love and so logically, the great love of God is first, and his abundant mercy is second and so I'm taking the this order of things in ephesians two four to interpret love Romans five through eight, the center. Romans chapters 5 through 8, mercy, Romans 9 through 11. Of course, the climactic verse, 1132, God has consigned all of humanity to disobedience in order to have mercy upon all. All is the emphasis there. Romans 5 through 8 also has, at the end of it, the very heart and center of Romans. We're pushing toward it. That's what I'm doing in Romans. Never did this before in an epistle pushing toward the center. The center is Romans 8, 31, and 32. And that's actually the geographical center just about, the topographical center, but it's the heart of hearts of the gospel because there it says that God is for us and he has given his son, not spared his son as he spared Isaac's son, Isaac, Abraham's son, in Genesis 22 8, but freely gave him up for us all. God for us all is the heart and center of Romans, towards which we are pushing. And the last word in that verse in Romans eight thirty-two is Pantone for all. And that curiously blends with Alaria Ramelli's Christian doctrine of apocatastasis, which is apocatastasis Pantone. The restoration of all things, which God spoke through the mouth of the prophets from time immemorial. All God's prophets from time immemorial. One message, apocatastasis, restoration of all things, all beings, all humans, all angelic beings, all that has breath. And so the last word we'll look at in Romans is pantone, right in the center He freely gave him up for us all handed him over for us all the last word we studied in the book of Revelation was all because we went from front to back and at the last phrase in Revelation the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ which is his saving grace His universal saving significance to all Pantone that's the key word Paul uses the word all 77 times in Romans. And so we're now dealing with the heart of the matter, God's great love, God's unrestricted love, God's unconditional and uncontingent love, God's universal mercy at the heart of Romans, the heart of which the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we discovered a lamb at the heart of Revelation in Revelation 5, 5, and 6, we discover a lamb at the heart of Romans. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The universally saving significance of Jesus Christ is how we have approached what God the Holy Spirit is showing servant after servant of his across this world today, the Apocatastasis panton. If all the prophets from the beginning had one message, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, then who has the right to contradict that message? And so God is calling upon the church to repent. Having reconciled us, he calls us to repent. This repentance is reflected beautifully in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 40 and verse one All the way to 4055, 16 chapters called Deutero Isaiah, the second Isaiah, comes with an eternal head of steam into the New Testament. It's the whole, that whole 16 chapters is the backlighting of the entire New Testament, the center of which and the heart of which is Isaiah chapter 53. And I just have time to look at a little. Of this chapter, there are probably rabbis across the world that are focusing on this chapter along with Leviticus 16. I'm only going to touch a couple of places on it, but I'm doing so with an awe that has gripped me now for about seven or eight years. But more specifically and more powerfully recently, Romans 5 is where we are now. And that chapter is backlit, as I say. It's a, a stage backlit by Isaiah 53. In fact, all of Romans, the epistle, and the entire New Testament is backlit by Isaiah 53. Why is God's love showcased in Christ's death? The answer is because Christ is God and because God suffered the consequences of our enslavement and our collusion with sin. As the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and mankind, suffered, so God, the Father and the Spirit, suffered. Only Christ died, but the Father and the Spirit suffered the death and the dying of the Son. the church is being called to repentance as the world is being called to repentance. So I want to look at Isaiah 53.4 to get the heart of this matter. Speaking of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and I've translated this from the Hebrew today in honor of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Surely he himself carried away that's the word the Hebrew is Nasa Nasa and it's rarely translated properly surely he himself it says carried away and the word Nasa means several things it means he accepted accepted he also lifted he lifted he carried and even the word or the nuance of meaning, he carried off. He carried away. And there's even a sense where he contained our sickness, it says. Surely he himself carried away. This fits beautifully with Hebrews 9.26. Christ at the end of the ages appeared to put away sin, to lift it up and take it away, put away sin by the offering of himself, backlit by this verse, surely he himself carried away, is how I will translate it. The lamb takes away the sin of the world. This is called expiation. Expiation, not propitiation first. Expiation is a removal of sin. It's a taking away. It's a lifting up and taking away. Propitiation implies the anger of God or the punitive justice of God, which is not what happened at the cross. It is a substitution, but it's not a penal substitution. The church is called to repent of the notion of a retributive punitive God and to come around to God who is for us we can say God is and we can say God is for us and we're saying the same thing the same declaration God is God is for us the very fact that God exists means he exists for us. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Yahweh exists to save. That God is and that God is for us is the same thing. God has never not been for us, his creation. He has never not been for you. And we discovered recently that when Matthew 25 speaks of the Son of Man coming on his glorious throne and separating the sheep and the goats. That glorious throne is not a future throne. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's where the Son of Man said, I never knew you to mankind in toto under sin and where he said yes to mankind as a creation of God. So then expiation, Isaiah 53, 4, surely he himself carried away, even contained our sickness. Now the word sickness is used here and sometimes healers will use this verse that he bore our sicknesses and that's because you you can come down and be healed now. But that's a metaphor for the desperate condition of our sinfulness, of what we were under sin, incapable of making any movement at all, Godward. And that's another hard thing, another hard pill for the church to swallow. We have to repent of making a citadel and an idolatrous shrine out of the human will. We aren't saved because we made a decision by our will. We are saved because of God's will, God's will to save, and Christ's will which took him on a line of obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion and resurrection as a result. Surely he himself carried away our sickness. Now, the net note on this is very excellent because it says, illness and pain stand by metonymy or metaphors for sin and its effects. He's speaking of sin and its effects here with the word sin, sin, or Sickness. That's where we have Christus Medicus, Christ the great physician, the theme comes forward. Surely he himself carried away our sicknesses. In Isaiah 1 5, the scripture says, The whole head is sick, as God diagnosed Judah and all of humankind. The whole head is sick. And he interprets that to mean. The whole head is sick with rebellion, and the whole heart is faint. And so Isaiah 1, 5 finds a partner here in 53, 4. Surely he himself carried away our sickness. That's our desperate condition under sin, which is a double thing. First, we're under enslavement to sin. Second, we're in collusion. I like the word collusion because that's the big word lately in the news all the time. Collusion, collusion, collusion. It means complicity. It means willing, voluntary complicity with an enemy. Collusion. Sin. We were under sin, enslaved to it, and complicit with it. When this personage himself carried away our sin he carried away our enslavement to sin and our complicity with it all the acts in which we were complicit with sin were carried away contained falling on a grenade is a good analogy it's been used before falling on a grenade is what he did containing that which was against us sin. And he bore our pain. Pain here is machob, M-A-K-O-B in the Hebrew. Machob. I'm just giving the transliteration. And then it says, and here's where the repentance must come in. Yet we ourselves, the prophet Isaiah, the second Isaiah, accounted him as stricken. There's a very strong poetic here. The word is naga. Stricken and smitten, naha naga and Naha very strong. We ourselves accounted him as, in English I'd say, stricken, smitten, stricken, fatally smitten, struck by God and afflicted. We accounted him, Jesus, as smitten by God. And afflicted by God. We wrongly considered him as a man afflicted by God. We wrongly considered him to be a penal substitute for our sins. We wrongly considered it. We regarded him as punished. Stricken and afflicted by God prophesied the second Isaiah. But then he realized that it was for our complicity and collusion with sin that he was, and I use the air quotes on purpose, punished. Now here we get to the heart of the atonement. We've approached it with awe. The Jewish calendar has 10 days of awe. They have completed today. They began for us couple Sundays ago they end tonight punished here does not mean that God punished Jesus for our sins that's what we regarded Isaiah speaking for his people said we accounted him to be afflicted by God that's like Romans or rather first Corinthians where Paul said no one speaking by the Holy Spirit said Jesus is accursed meaning cursed by God Galatians three thirteen says he became a curse not the curse of God the curse of the law hijacked by sin we have to see some things here about God that we haven't seen before we have already been reconciled to God Being reconciled, we are called to repent. That's what God is doing in the church. That's why there's resistance to the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of apocatastasis, because it requires a repentance on the part of believers who have before considered God to be retributive and punitive and hostile toward mankind and therefore required a propitiatory sacrifice like a pagan deity would. Child sacrifice. That's not the case. Punished here doesn't even mean punished. It's the Greek word is paiduo and it means a discipline. So he takes it out of the hospital Where sickness is the analogy. And he brings it into the school. Where discipline is the analogy. And so therefore punished does not mean that God punished Jesus for our sins. The triune God. That's the father, son, and spirit. Suffered in that Christ event at Calvary. Just as the man Christ Jesus suffered inconceivably, and this is where the other side gets it wrong, they want to take away the notion of penal substitution, rightly, but then they take away the baby, they throw away the baby with the bathwater and take away substitution altogether, and that's wrong. You can have the great horizon of universal salvation out there, but we don't want to get the center from which it emanates wrong, which is the cross, the heart of the matter. And this is how I've approached it. The triune God suffered in the Christ event just as the man Christ Jesus suffered inconceivably. But the punishment was not afflicted on him by God. Rather, God in Christ was being crushed under the steamroller of sin itself. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ. He has not left me alone, Jesus said. When I'm lifted up, you'll know, not only know that I am Yahweh, the God who saves, but you'll also know in John eight twenty nine, my father has not left me alone. Even when I cry out, why have you abandoned me? You should know my father has not left me alone. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not Charging their trespasses to them Now The punishment was not afflicted on him by God. We thought that said Isaiah With the people whom he represented we thought it wrongly God in Christ was being crushed under the steamroller of sin itself experiencing the full and fatal effects of mankind's complicity with sin. God experienced it. All the doctrines that say that God is up there with no no emotion, no passion, no feeling are wrong. He felt. He felt. He feels a passionate philanthropy for mankind. A passionate love. For humankind. He feels this. He felt the pain and the suffering. Of experiencing the full and fatal effects. Of man's complicity with sin. This is the cup. That Jesus drank to the dregs. And with the dregs. This is the cup. That he drank. And he drank it. With the very remains and dregs at the bottom of it. It was the cup of death. That Paul called the wages of sin in Romans 6:23, the wages of sin. The wages of sin means the end result, or the we could call it, the ultimate harvest of sin's enslavement, sin with a capital sin, because it 's an apocalyptic cosmic enslaver as we're going to see more so when we get to Galatians the ultimate harvest of sins enslavement of the human race and of humanity's collusion with sin there was an ultimate end to it called wages it's the wages that sin pays so it is not God punishing but God himself enduring The incomprehensible, there's a word for you, incomprehensible. I use it on purpose. The incomprehensible harvest of misery that sin leads to, endured by God. Again, not God punishing, God himself enduring the incomprehensible harvest of misery that sin leads to. This is Yom Kippur. This is the meaning of the Day of Atonement, which we now regard with numberless days of worship and gratitude. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through. Memories here of Revelation 1 7. Amen and yes and amen, he says. Every eye will see him even those who pierced him and that revelation itself is salvation for all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The salvation of God is Yeshua is Jesus to see him is to be saved. He was pierced through because of our transgression. We viewed him as a man God was punishing for something wrong he must have done. But he was pierced through because of our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The discipline that was needed for our shalom. Here's another metaphor. There's a picture of a school in which the students are disciplined in order to come to maturation or maturity he experienced the discipline that was needed for our shalom our peace you see what I mean by backlighting Romans 5 therefore being justified by the faithfulness of Christ we have shalom with God the justification is not by our faith but by his faithfulness that took him to the extent of death by crucifixion He was pierced through because of our transgression. Notice he says, but contrary to what we accounted, that he was a man afflicted by God, we now understand after repentance, he was pierced through because of our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The discipline that was needed for our shalom. Our peace actually means salvific well-being. Therefore, being justified by faithfulness, God's in Christ and Christ's in God's faithfulness, we have or let us go on to enjoy this salvific well-being called peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He was pierced through because of our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The discipline that was needed for our shalom, our salvific well-being, was endured by him. And by his scourging, we are completely healed. Hebrew, Rapha. Yahweh Rapha. The Lord, our healer. All of this, and this is extremely important, all of this is metaphorical language for the incomprehensible. I'll use that word again, and I'll tell you why in a minute. All of this metaphorical language is for the incomprehensible experience of Jesus as he endured the cross. It is not speaking of him literally being scourged, even though he was literally scourged before his crucifixion. The scourging here, though, is a metaphor for the incomprehensible, I use it on purpose, suffering that Jesus endured to secure our peace with God. Remember God made peace by the blood of the cross of the son of his love in order to reconcile everything in the heavens and earth to him. Colossians 1:20. He endured incomprehensible suffering to secure our peace with God or our salvific well being, otherwise known as our reconciliation to God. And again, this goes directly to Romans 5 1 and identifies the faith by which we are rectified and by which we have peace with God. It is not our personal faith, as we have learned, it is the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is unto and through that specific and absolute death that his faithfulness took him. And that death is the wages that sin pays. The wages of sin is death, says Romans 6.23. This is all building to an insight. I'm not giving you insights. I'm building to an insight of the cross. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. The wages that sin pays to its slaves and its colluders, those who collude with it, is an incomprehensible death. But once you understand that, you appreciate the second half of that statement, but the unspeakable gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death for all humankind. The gift of God is life for all humankind. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. All of this speaks of Christus Medicus, Christ the physician. And it points to Romans 5, 6. While we were weak, the word asthenes doesn't just mean weak. It means... The fatality, the fatal sickness, sickness unto death, and the inability that accompanies total fatal illness. While we were fatally sick, remember, he carried our sickness away. He contained it in himself. He carried it away. While we were fatally sick, Christ died just in time for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6 equates ungodliness with sickness. And so it's a metaphor for ungodliness. And so the teacher would tell us God handed over the ungodly to be punished. Whereas Paul says Christ was handed over and died for the ungodly just in time. It's it, the metaphor is just before we were ready to die, Christ died for the ungodly. First Peter 318 says the same thing. He died the righteous one for the unrighteous sinfulness in Romans 5, 8 while we were still sinners, Christ died. God commended his love God demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, that means still colluding with sin and still enslaved by sin, Christ died. Therefore, being justified by his faithfulness, we have peace. Shalom. And we should go on to enjoy that harmony and that peace, that salvific well being with others. Being justified by his faithfulness, we have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 5 1, right there, the faith or the faithfulness by which we are justified is the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's explicit. The phrase comes up again in Romans 6:23. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Isaiah 53 permeates Romans here and this happens to be Yom Kippur. Happens to be celebrated on September 19th in our calendar this year. The Day of Expiation. The punishment of which the second Isaiah speaks is paideia in the Greek and it too is a metaphor for a discipline with a view to bringing a person to completion or to maturity. So Isaiah 53 backlights Romans 5 but it backlights Romans 5 through 8 too. It backlights Romans the epistle. It backlights the whole New Testament. It's the backlighting of the New Testament message on stage. Isaiah 53 is powerful in its portrayal of the center from which reconciliation emanates for all creation in all of its times. I'll say that again. Isaiah 53 is powerful in its portrayal of the center, the cross, from which reconciliation emanates, but it's also vivid in its portrayal of the universal horizon of that atonement. He doesn't just talk about the center, he talks about the universal horizon. For Isaiah 53.11 says this, and you can look at it if you wish, but Isaiah 53.11 says, by his sufferings, my righteous servant, my servant will justify many. That's what backlights Romans 5 18. His obedience his death leads to the justification of life for all humankind. Many in Isaiah 53:11 means all in Romans 5:18 and 5:19. Paul is drawing that into the gospel. By his suffering, knowledge there is not knowledge, it's the experience of the incomprehensible suffering of death, which is the wages that sin pays out ultimately. Nobody here will ever know the wages of sin that it pays out because it's been endured by God himself in Jesus Christ. If you want to describe a hell, there it is. So Romans 5 is backlit by Isaiah 53 and the atonement, which can be called substitutionary, not because God punished Jesus, but because Jesus in our place endured the effect that the sin that was unleashed in the world by Adam's transgression. And its effect would be experienced by Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. Substitutionary, not because God punished Jesus, but because Jesus in our place endured the effect or the wages that that sin was, the effect being an incomprehensible, absolute kind of death. Again, it's incomprehensible. I'll explain why. The death of Jesus then was the unfathomable judgment of God upon sin in the very flesh of his son. This is not a penal substitution which puts God's justice at the forefront of all of his actions. This is the ultimate expression of God's unrestricted love. The death of Jesus was not a penal substitution, but an act of incomprehensible love. I use that word again incomprehensible. The word incomprehensible is in play in recent messages, especially during the days of awe, because it indicates the nature of the gift of God and of God's love as that which surpasses human comprehension. It's incomprehensible because it surpasses human knowing. To know the love of Christ that surpasses human knowing to know the love of Christ is to know an incomprehensible kind of love that can't be known by any human knowing and can only be known by the insight given by the Holy Spirit so Paul expressed this incomprehensibility in Ephesians 319 speaking of the love of Christ he says which surpasses knowledge and again in Romans eleven thirty three on the other side of the center of Romans where he speaks of the inestimable depth of the wealth and wisdom and knowledge of God inestimable incalculable and of his unfathomable judgments and he uses the word incomprehensible ways of acting all of which are saving in their effect. God's wisdom is a saving wisdom. You know the scriptures, Timothy, they're able to make you wise with respect to salvation, which is by Christ Jesus. What are the scriptures about? Wisdom, which is wise with respect to salvation by Christ Jesus. Second Timothy 3.15 His un fathomable judgments are unfathomable because they're not judgments of condemnation or punishment or retribution they are saving salutary salvific that God is and that God is the God who saves is one thing that God is and that God saves is one thing that God exists and that he exists for you is the same thing His unfathomable judgments and incomprehensible ways of acting are all saving in their effect and all of them are summed up in the word Jesus, God who saves. Now let's see how this stands out, Romans 5. Let's turn there now. I've actually translated 5, 1 to 11. I'm going to read it very quickly here. Let's see how Romans five one through eleven stands out on a stage backlit by Isaiah fifty three, Romans five one. Therefore being justified on account of the aforementioned faithfulness, he says. The aforementioned faithfulness. What is it? It's Romans four twenty five. He was handed over for our sins and raised up for our justification. The faith there that by which we are justified is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that culminated in his death and resurrection. Faithfulness in which he was handed over for our sins and raised up for our justification. Let us therefore enjoy peace with God. We mentioned this last week. The translation here is it's an exhortation. Let us enjoy this salvific well-being together. Let us enjoy the peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access into this grace in which we stand. And I'm just reading it tonight. I'm not going to comment on it quite yet. And let us boastfully exult in the prospect of the hope of the glory of God. Beyond that, verse 3, let us also exult in our troubles, knowing that tribulation... Produces perseverance. That's another way of saying trouble manufactures soldiers. It manufactures soldiers. Men and women who are inured to difficulty that don't whine about it or complain about it or cry about it. They're inured to it. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and then notice what verse 4 says. Very difficult to translate, but I finally got this together. Verse 4, perseverance, the proven character, which in turn incentivizes hope as an assured expectancy in you. In other words, you go through tribulations, you see that God was faithful through them all. You go through things that you don't think you can ever get out of and you get out of them by God's faithfulness. You go through enough of that, and you're a veteran, and you say, God has always been faithful through all those times before. I expect he will be again. Faith, hope. It's a new expectation. Your perseverance incentivizes a hopefulness, an expectancy of God. Not only for your situation, though, it actually engenders an expectation of an eschatological apocatastasis of all things. It makes you believe it reasonably. So the proven character, look how this works. Let us boastfully exalt, says to be, at the prospect of the hope of the glory of God. Beyond that, verse 3, let us also exalt, that's triumphantly celebrate in our troubles, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, verse 4, the proven character. Perseverance is the proven character, which in turn incentivizes hope as an assured expectancy in you. And this hope is not just a deferred consolation. In other words, it's not, hope makes not ashamed doesn't mean it's not just an expectation that's deferred. It isn't a deferred consolation. It isn't God just saying, well, hang in there, nothing's happening now, but sometime it will for you. Because it's not a deferred consolation, meaning it doesn't embarrass you for having it. You shouldn't be embarrassed for having this hope. Because the love of God has already been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The love of God has already been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, in other words, hope isn't just a deferred consolation because you have even now the beginnings of the experience of the life of the coming age. And so this hope is rooted in something that you already have the love of God being poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us is the beginning even now of the experience of that eternal life, which we will have at the parousia, when Christ comes, and ever after, ever after, completely. And so this hope is not just a deferred consolation, is how I would translate 5 5, because the love of God has already been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For while we were still desperately sick, Asthenes, which means Totally weak, but it means terminally ill by a metonymy or by a metaphor. While we were still desperately sick, that's our condition under sin's enslavement and in collusion with sin. Christ died just in time. That's in the crisis of the ages. We're going to find out where we live. We live in the juncture of the ages, and that's why things are so screwed up in the world right now. It isn't because of the Republicans, it isn't because of the Democrats, it isn't because of the life-denying concepts of socialism, it isn't because of any political ideology, it's because of God's invasion of this evil age and how he shook things up. It's a twice-invaded age. Christ at the end of the ages at the juncture of the ages appeared to put away sin But look what it says the kind of love that's poured out in our hearts happens to be this kind While we were still desperately sick Christ died just in time on behalf of the ungodly he equates right there this desperate sickness with ungodliness and that's us now With difficulty, he says in verse 7, you can cite examples of someone dying for an innocent person. I used to teach in the Hall of Valor at Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall. And we would always look at the, on the wall, there were little stories and vignettes of just this thing. Someone dying for a righteous person. Someone dying for their fellow combatant someone dying falling on a grenade or standing in front of the enemy taking fire for someone else and there are examples of this and you have to search for them it doesn't happen every day but with difficulty he says you can cite examples of someone dying for an innocent person and for a benevolent person a good person someone may also be brave enough to die But look at verse 8, but God showcased his love for us in that while we were still enslaved by and colluding with sin. We have to understand that both. We were enslaved by it and colluding with it. And we used here is for the whole of the human race. God sees all of the human race at all time. He doesn't. Exist in a time he stands astride all times simultaneously. He sees all of humankind in the activity in collusion with sin and that's when Christ dies. For the other. Christ died for us that means both on behalf of us and in our place. Not in our place as the one punished for us, but in our place enduring with God, the Father, and with the Spirit, the ultimate harvest of sin, where sin would have brought us, finally and everlastingly, to an incomprehensible, endless death. There's the substitution. He stands in for us, Instead of us in the sense that sin's ultimate harvest doesn't happen to us. Sin's ultimate wages are not paid to us. They are endured by God in Christ and by Christ in God. We have to get rid of this picture where Jesus is punished by an angry retributive God. Retribution and anger never enters into God's God's character and nature and essence and activity. Where you're concerned. God showcased his love for us. In that while we were still enslaved by and colluding with sin Christ died for us much more than says verse nine since we have now been justified by his blood. Why by his blood? Why does it say by faith in one and by his blood here? Is there a contradiction? Or does justified by faith mean Christ's faithfulness, which is the same as being justified by Christ's blood, which is the climax of his obedient faithfulness to God for us? Justified by his blood. It says, we will be saved from the aforementioned wrath. He says, the wrath. He goes all the way back to Romans 1.18, where the teacher says, well, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and ungodliness. All of this wrath that he says is going to happen in a last judgment. Paul says you can be sure being justified, rectified, set right by the blood of Christ. You can be all the more sure that you're going to be saved from that so-called aforementioned wrath by his life. God showcased his love for us, says verse 8. In that while we were still enslaved by and colluding with sin, Christ died for us. Much more than, verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the aforementioned wrath through him. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies. Now it's not just sinners. Now we're full-fledged enemies. Our hostility against God. It's our hostility. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God while we were enemies. It doesn't say when we believed. It says while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God while we were enemies. It sounds a little like Ephesians 2, 4, but God in his great mercy because of his abundant love, By grace you have been saved. Uncontingent grace. Grace that didn't have to meet with a response in you. The response was in Jesus Christ. The faithfulness was in Jesus Christ. So while you were dead in trespasses and sins, God made you alive in Christ. By grace, that's what I mean by grace you are saved. By grace you are saved. While we were yet enemies, we were reconciled. While we were yet enemies. It doesn't say when we believed we were reconciled. It says while we were actively hostile and colluding with the sin that enslaved us, we were reconciled. You see what I mean? The church has to repent of any notion of it having some contingency in itself, something in me. If it's not my merit, it's my decision, by golly. No, it isn't your decision. We've only begun to fight on this one. This is just the front that's opening right now, a battlefront that's opening right now. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his son's death, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? That is, by sharing his own life. Sharing his own life. While we were dead, he made us alive with Christ. While we were dead, he made us alive with Christ. Ephesians 2.5. By grace you are saved. That's what I mean. By grace you are saved. It's an entirely uncontingent grace. And then in 2.8 he then explains. By this grace you have been saved. Through faithfulness. But that not of yourselves. It isn't by grace answering faith in you. It's grace answering faithfulness in Jesus Christ. By which the whole human race is saved. That's why, when all things are subordinated to Him, and He submits Himself to the Father, as Ilaria Romelli spectacularly displayed in that interview that I watched today, when He submits Himself to God, Arius tried to use that and say, "See, He's subordinate to God. He's not God. He's..." He's subordinate to God. No, it's when he subordinates himself to God, he subordinates all of humanity that he has taken into himself to God so that God can be all in all. That's the ultimate end of this thing. So, in closing again, How much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? That is, by sharing his own life. Life Life-giving justification, which he says in 5.18. Not only that, Paul's always saying that. Not only that, but we also rejoice triumphantly or boast. Remember, the teacher said, where is boasting then in Romans 3.27? Here it is. We also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now through whom we have now received reconciliation. King James translates that as the atonement, the atonement with God. So now God calls us to repentance. He calls those who call themselves the church to repentance because like Israel for whom Isaiah the second spoke in Isaiah 53, 4, We considered Jesus to be a man afflicted by God when in fact God was afflicted together with the man Christ Jesus and God suffered the same death that his son suffered and died I said God suffered the same death that his son suffered and died I didn't say God died the same death. I said he suffered the same death that the son died. This is love. This is God who is love. God is love. God is And God is as love. God exists. And God exists to save. Love is God's will to save. God is this will to save. God is the God who saves that God is and that God is for us is one truth. You can't say God is oh and secondly God is for us. No, the fact that God is and the fact that God is for us is one thing one truth one God. God was not afflicting his son on the cross. God was being afflicted together with his son for the sins of mankind The triune God drank the cup of the wages of sin with its dregs. That is right down to the last sin and to the worst sin and to the guys or the woman's sins that offend you the most. And you are so offended that God actually redeems the worst kinds of sons of bitches that ever lived on this earth and that he redeems angels is even more shocking to people. You must repent of having such a paltry and pathetic picture of God's love. And we must repent for putting justice ahead of love when we should see justice as a tiny little circle in a great big circle called love and when we should see judgment as a tiny little circle in a great big circle called mercy. And unless the Apocatastasis Pantone crowd gets this center together, they're going to be dislodged and always wondering where they are, wandering in the wilderness somewhere, looking for answers somewhere. So finally, because this love expressed and exhibited on Calvary is poured out in our hearts, then we know that our hope, our expectation of the glorious deliverance of all of creation And of all of humanity in all of its times is a guaranteed certainty. If this love is in your heart, you know. If this love is poured out in your heart, this kind of love that dies for the ungodly, that dies while people are in the height of sinfulness and hostility against God, you know by that love being poured out in your hearts that God will reconcile all things to himself. In fact, that he already has done it. That's the big thing. Behold, I'm making all things new, Revelation 21.5. Guess what he said then? It's done. Who's talking there? Someone who's astride all times simultaneously, that's who. So we boast in this hope, the hope of the glory of God, because the glory of God has already been apocalypse to us. It's already invaded us in its full glory at Calvary. And it will be universally showcased at the parousia and ever after. So someone who has a problem, as I once did, with God reconciling everything to himself, has to reckon with the fact that the love of God isn't in him. And Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said, I know you, that the love of God is not in you. In John 5.42, the love of God isn't in you. The love of God isn't in the so-called church. Whom God is calling now to repent. To ever think that we ever thought that God could have ever been against us. Is to not know God at all. So we thank you, Father, that you have reconciled us to your son through his blood. That you've justified us by his blood. That you did so while we were enemies. How much more now that you've reconciled us can we be saved by his life. Father, when you call the church to repent as you are now, we know that it only is effected if you grant the repentance. Grant repentance to the church who call themselves your people. Grant repentance to the church. To me first.